0: I'm not sure there's been a more influential Christian over the last few centuries than C.S. Lewis. Many of us have read the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, or, or one of his other dozens of books that he's written, and his influence is still felt today. In his biography, Lewis tells of the suffering he endured because he kept a promise that he made to a buddy in World War I. This friend was worried about the care of his wife and his small daughter uh, after the war if he were to die. And so he, he asked Lewis, he said, would you make sure that they're taken care of if I were to perish? And as the war dragged on, the man was killed. And true to his word, Lewis took care of his friend's family. Yet no matter how helpful he tried to be, the woman was ungrateful, rude, arrogant, and domineering. And through it all, Lewis kept forgiving her. He refused to let her actions become an excuse to renege on his promise. C.S. Lewis wasn't God. He was just a Christian man. But his actions pointed people to Christ. His treatment of this woman was powerful enough, even though she didn't appreciate what he had done for her. Have you ever thought about the grace of God this way? Have you ever considered that all that we have done, that that we've done all that we can to get away from the grasp of God's grace? See, we think we know best. We can do it on our own because we're independent people. We think that the Christian standards are a shackle and they prevent us from living our best life now. See, as a child, I didn't appreciate my parents' consistency. In fact, I hated it. It was, above all things, one thing that I hated the most. I knew exactly what they would say for every situation. I could repeat it, and I was always right. I knew exactly what they would do. And I hated every second of it. If they made a promise, I knew what they would say. They would keep it. And as I've gotten older, I've grown to appreciate that more. I was a stupid kid and even stupider teenager. But through all of the chaos that I brought to their lives, I always knew this, that they loved me and they would care for me. They were the definition of consistent. But like C.S. Lewis, my parents have flaws. At some point in their lives, they'll fail to be consistent. They will make mistakes, so what do I do then? It sounds trite. But I rest on the promises of God. When people fail, I rest on the promises of God. When people lie to me, I rest on the promises of God. When people turn from me, I rest on the promises of God. At least I try. Because God always does what he says he will do. This is the story of what's happened so far. Throughout Genesis, the first 20 chapters, we've seen this over and over again. God making a promise, God fulfilling his end of the bargain. We've seen this ultimately coming from the promise that comes in Genesis chapter three of a promised savior. See, we know the end of the story, don't we? Those in Genesis did not. But we know that the promised one will come one day who will crush the head of the serpent, who will defeat sin and death, and who will restore creation back to its original design. We know that to be true. See, God created the world and everything in it. And the first two humans did what we often do. They thought they knew better than God. So what did they do? They sinned. They broke God's standard. They strayed from what God said for them to do. And we've seen how this is the the same story of all humanity. This has been our story throughout our history. But Adam and Eve's sin didn't surprise God, nor did it change his plans. As we said in Genesis chapter 3, God promised that a Savior would come, one who would fix all of the problems that we face. The first Adam, Adam's sin, created what we see today. You want to know why we have so much turmoil? Trace it back to Genesis. Genesis. If you want to know why stuff is happening in Afghanistan right now, trace it back to Genesis. The root of all of it is sin. And this is what happened with the first two people. And Adam's sin has funneled down to us, to every person who was born after him. We are not Adam, but we are on Adam's team. And if a player on a team gets a penalty or a foul, the rest of the team suffers. And that's what's happened to us. But the truth is, we've chosen to sin on our own well enough anyway. We didn't need Adam. There's one person who did not, who was not born with the sin nature, who was not born with that stain of sin from Adam, and that person is Jesus, who would come thousands of years later, but he is the point of all the Bible, including the Old Testament. Every passage points to Christ because every passage shows us our need for both forgiveness and a substitute to take our place. See, Adam wasn't good enough. Adam wasn't perfect, neither was Moses, neither was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but Jesus is. So there's hope. There's hope for you and there's hope for me. There's hope in all of this. In all of the confusion and evil that we see, there is still hope. God is still calling people to himself. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham, then known as Abram, and he gave him a purpose. God makes promises to Abraham about land and a promised heir. And one of the most vivid passages in all of scripture, something that is strange to us, is Genesis chapter 15, where God shows that his covenant is one-sided, and we better be thankful for that. And this picture is the, the animals that were cut into two and a, a torch, a flaming torch, runs through the center of it as Abraham is off to the side watching what's happening. It's because God's saying, look, you can't fulfill this promise, Abraham, only I can. This was a visual sign that the God uh, that God is good and it's all based on his goodness and not the obedience of Abraham. See, little signs and hints and pictures of the gospel that is to be fully, completely open to us. The gospel that we see, these are pointers to that gospel truth. And as we see this in Abraham and his, his wife Sarah, they grow old and, and they get frustrated with God not giving them their heir soon enough. And it results in chaos, confusion, and calamity. And in their frustration, they decided that Hagar, a slave, would bear Abraham a son that he had been promised. In other words, they used, no, no, let me rephrase that. They raped Hagar. They used their authority over her to get what they wanted. They not only abused her, they showed that they really didn't trust in God's promises. But God remained faithful. Abraham tried to run from the promise. He tried to get away. He tried to wiggle out of God's grasp. And God still remained faithful. Always faithful. God never went back on his promise because the promise was never earned by Abraham in the first place. It was all God. And then in chapter 17, God tells Abraham that his promised son is not Ishmael, the son birthed from Hagar, but Isaac, who will belong to him and to Sarah. Now, were other things that were happening to Abraham at this time in between these chapters, um, things that sound more like a movie script than reality. But through all of this, one thing was certain. God is faithful and he always keeps his promises. Abraham did everything that he could to get out. But God was still faithful. And that's exactly what we see in verse 1 of our text, promise kept. Look at this verse. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. It took many, many years for Sarah to to, to get pregnant. She was 90 when she conceived. God promised Abraham a year before that Isaac, that his son would be born, and his name would be Isaac, and Abraham laughed. And so did Sarah. Sarah. The reality is, is even at 90, even if at 50 or 60, if we heard this, we would laugh, wouldn't we? Really? Now, I'm not even talking about this, not even being up 90 and and getting pregnant for the first time. But think about the times that we don't trust the promises that God makes to us. God will never leave us or forsake us. How often do we forget that? He promises that his love will never fail. We forget that. He promises that all things work together for our good. We forget that often, don't we? He promises salvation to all who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. God says that our sins are all wiped away when we put our faith in the finished work of Christ. All of this is kind of beyond belief, isn't it? That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.10 that we are fools for Christ's sake. The Greek word for fools, and I had to look this up, it's, it's moros, M-O-R-O-S, anglicized. In 1910, a psychologist took that word and, and used this Greek word to coin the term moron, and originally it was for people with intellectual disabilities, people who were of special needs. Now, over time, that word became abused, so the psycho- psychological community decided we're not going to use that anymore. Uh, now it's just a term of derision. It's a term of insult. And in Paul's usage... It's not someone with special needs. Rather, it's just a foolish person. That's the terminology that he's using. It's a dummy. It's someone stupid. This is what the world sees when they see us. They see morons. They see people who have no hope, people who are hoping in a dead man. That's what people see when they see us. How could anyone devote their lives to a guy who lived 2,000 years ago? No one could be born of a virgin dead people don't rise from the dead See this is the story of God working in and through humanity to bring himself glory And this passage Genesis chapter 21 is yet another example of God doing something that's crazy something impossible something that our minds we have trouble wrapping our brains around the idea that a 90-year-old woman could conceive and give birth to a son That's absurd We would laugh at this just like we would laugh at everything else that God has done. If God hadn't first revealed it to us through his spirit. And the point of all this is that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. This is what we see in verses 2 through 7, a promise delivered. So we have a a promise kept and now we have a promise delivered. Uh, Look at these verses with me. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him? Whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was hundred years old when I, when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, "God has made laughter for me; everyone who hears will laugh over me." And she said, "Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age." Names in the Old Testament mean things. So not now. We just like the sound of when we name our kid because we like the way it sounds. We, we choose names just based on aesthetics and sound, not because of the meaning behind. Abraham used to be called Abram. And Sarah used to be called Sarai. Now, those name, ma- names mean something. Abram meant father. And when his name was changed to Abraham, now it means a father of multitudes. Pretty big difference. Sarah... We used to be Sarai, Sarai meant princess, while Sarah means my princess, almost a queenly feeling to it. It's a more authoritative feeling, so they kind of jumped up on the importance scale. Now, the name Isaac means laughter, or he will laugh. Now, that name God gave to him was something of a a rebuke for the laughter that Sarah and Abraham had towards God's promises. Look back at Genesis 17, 17 through 19. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And then in Genesis chapter 18, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, you did laugh. See what God did? He turned a rebuke into an occasion for joy. Now, here's what I don't want us to do, because I think, especially American Christians, we have a tendency to take these promises in the Old Testament and uh, improperly apply them to our lives. So what, what happens when we see this is we see that the, the God takes the mess that's Abraham and Sarah's life, and, and we think that it's going to happen exactly the same way for us. Now, see, I'm not talking about your salvation, because that's the most miraculous thing that could happen. Your salvation is a gift of grace from God that has been given to you that you do not deserve. Neither do I. None of us deserve that. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about that. And this passage actually points to salvation, and we'll see that soon. The gift of salvation is infinitely greater than anything could, could give. So that is world-changing. But what I'm talking about here, and I've seen this happen, is how some Christians think that behind every tragedy, there is victory for them in this life. That there is some great victory hiding behind every corner. Yes, Jesus is our victory, but your life may be miserable right now. See, right now Christians in Afghanistan are either dead or being hunted or they're living in fear that they're being hunted. There's no other other type of Christian there. that, That every Christian in Afghanistan right now is scared literally to death about what's going to happen. They've been getting messages from the Taliban saying, we know you, we know where you are, we're coming after you. What's their best life now, right? Their life may end with a a bullet to the brain. That may be their future. Well, where's their victory, some would say? Will they experience this this kind of miraculous victory where they, they see the fruits of their faith in this life? See, I think we talk about victory now in the here and now, or maybe something that's coming soon, It feels close, but the question is, is it? And the reality is, for many of us, the victory will not be seen this side of heaven. For many of us, we we suffer from different ailments and different difficulties in our life that we will not experience that victory this side of heaven. Every moment of, of some of our lives are miserable by any stretch of the definition, yet we cling to the hope that keeps pushing us along. I think... I think well-meaning Christians try to encourage suffering saints by saying that there's victory there. And yes, we have the ultimate victory found in Christ. But we may not experience it here and now. I want you to hear something this morning that you may need to hear. Victory is coming, but your path may be littered with difficulty. That I know some of your stories, and some of your stories make me cry because I know how difficult life has been for some of you. And the pastoral side in me wants to give you comfort. Oh, yeah, it's going to get better. Things are going to improve. It may not. Your life may be defined by suffering. Just as many of the Christians throughout history have been uh, experienced that as well, the, the, the millions upon millions of believers that have been martyred for their faith, I, I would not define their life as victorious in the here and now. But their life was focused on the future. The victory that is promised to come. The victory that is found in Jesus alone. The greater victory. If you're suffering with finances, and I see these guys on TV, plant your seed and God's going to give you sevenfold back. Two questions. What happens if he doesn't? Their faith is shipwrecked. And if he does, what next? What next? Because we're not going to be satisfied with $10 million. We're going to want $100 million, right? So we're we're just going to keep planting those seeds, right? And what happens if it doesn't come? Do we lose our faith in God? See, the victory that is coming is not found in possessions. It's not found in an easy life. It's not found in people. It's only found in Christ. How do I know that? Look at who Isaac points to. If you look at the birth of Isaac and the birth of Jesus, both were promised sons. Both were born after a period of delay. Both mothers were assured by God's omnipotence. Both were given names before they were born. Both births occurred at God's appointed time. Both births were miraculous. Both births were accompanied by joy. And the greater pointer, pointer to Jesus comes in Genesis chapter 22 when it is unmistakable who this is pointing to. When Isaac, Abraham takes Isaac up on the mountain. See, this is not so much about Abraham and Isaac as it is about Jesus. Jesus say, well, I don't see the name on there. Then you're not looking. Because it's here. It's clear. Remember, Abraham's victory, so it seems, came when Isaac was born. That's what the the, the world would say. That's what people would say. Your victory is here. You've been waiting for decades for this child. And now the child comes. Now you can celebrate. His earthly life got better. Victory, to use a common term, was his, he thought. But Isaac could not save Abraham from the problems of his life, his sin. Isaac couldn't fulfill Abraham's side of the covenant. No one could do that. God gave Isaac to Abraham to do one thing, to prepare the way for Christ. This should have changed Abraham into something better, a better follower of Christ, a better Christian. He was being used to pave the way for the Messiah. Wouldn't that be great, right? Wouldn't that be great to be remembered throughout history as a a type of Christ? But what we see in this passage is the same old story. Look at verses 8 through 11. We see conflict. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. She said to Abraham, cast this slave woman out with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. One of the things that has struck me throughout our study of Genesis is that it should have made sense. Abraham was not saved because he was obedient. Abraham was not given the promise of God and the covenant because he fulfilled his end of the bargain. You can look through the previous 20 chapters and you can see how many times over that he did not do that. In fact, he went the exact opposite way. He did everything he could to end his side of the bargain. So he, there's no way that he was saved by his goodness or his obedience or his holiness. But we have a tendency though, don't we, to deify saints in the Old Testament. We look at these names, they're kind of superhero-ish, almost God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon. But what happens when we start digging into their lives? We see messes, don't we? over and over and over i mean david was a man after god's own heart and he was a, a not a good dude by any stretch of the imagination he had an affair with a married woman he killed her husband and then his offspring solomon and all the stuff that happened in solomon's family is just a complete mess They were not saved because they were good people. They were not saved because they were obedient. They were not saved because they were righteous in and of themselves. No, they were saved through grace just like you and just like me. But we think, man, they're somehow better than us. See, Abraham keeps making mistakes after mistake. And what does God do? Does God turn his back and say, Abraham, I'm done with you because you're not good. You keep disobeying me. You keep doing this. It's the story of Israel, isn't it? That Israel sins. God forgives them. They come back to fellowship with God. And then they get tired of it. And then they sin. And then the cycle repeats. And the same thing's happening with Abraham. That he finds this peace and this covenant. And then it doesn't take very long for him to go to the other side. And in verse 8, we see conflict that's about to happen. The traditional time to wean a child in the Old Testament was about three years. So we can assume that about that much time has passed. Isaac would have been a a toddler. Ishmael would have been about 16. So Ishmael has lived uh, at least for 13 years before Isaac came. He's lived for those years knowing who he was, who his mother was, how he was conceived, and that the promise really wasn't about him. Remember uh, that laughter has has played a role in this story so many times because we see Ishmael laughing. Uh, Isaac is named because of laughter. And now Sarah looks up and she sees Ishmael laughing. Not to bog you down with Hebrew, um, but a little Hebrew here would help. Uh, The name Isaac in Hebrew would be pronounced Yitzhak, Yitzhak. And the word laughter is pronounced Sahak. Do you hear the similarities there? It's the same root word. So the laughter that that Ishmael was doing, laughing at Isaac, is the same name that Isaac has. He's mocking Isaac. He's making fun of Isaac. He's deriding him. He's not giggling in the corner. And and Paul says this in Galatians chapter 4. He said that Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so it's fitting of his character. Paul says this, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are the two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, You who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Something as I'm reading the story of Ishmael, the only feeling I get is pity. Pity. To see what this guy had, has gone through, he, his story is sad. His, his mother is a slave to Abraham. She's raped by Abraham at Sarah's insistence. She gets pregnant, carries the child, and Ishmael always carries with him the stigma of being that kid. Both Hagar and Ishmael were mistreated by Sarah, and in these verses, we see that happening again. Now, Ishmael, who had been Abraham's only child for about 13 years, is feeling forgotten. And, and, and some families, we see this, we, we, we see this experience when, when, when an older child watches the, the parents dote over their younger child. I do my best to remind uh, our older boys um, when, when I'm playing with my four-year-old daughter and I'm telling my four-year-old daughter that she's my favorite kid in the whole world. I said, I said the same thing to you guys too. You just weren't old enough to understand what I was doing—that I was playing with you, and I was giving you hugs, reading you bedtime stories, and 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 constantly trying to play with you, and do all those things. I did the exact same thing with my my boys that I'm doing with my daughter, but they see it, and so I'm trying to be careful to not cause them to, to provoke them for, to jealousy. That they're saying, "Well, you're not playing with me like you love her." So you can imagine what Ishmael would have felt like here—that he would have been that kid. If this were a modern story, Sarah would just go on social media and harass Hagar for having what she didn't have. She would hate her and hate Ishmael for being the son that was promised to her. She must have mistreated Hagar and Ishmael. But then look at what happens in verses 12 through 14. Hagar and Ishmael are put out. But God says to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whoever, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread of a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Abraham had made a complete mess of those people around him. And then he hears from God. He was, again, at a low point, and, and God says to do whatever Sarah says, but both of his boys will father great nations. And then Abraham, making an attempt to care, gave her some water and sent her away. This could be the end of the story. Happily ever after, Hagar goes somewhere, and she flourishes, and, and she raises her son as a single mom, and, and everybody is wonderful, and everybody's happy, and there's two nations, and wonderful. But that's not how the story ends. Because with Abraham, it never ends that way. Things only get more complicated. Look at verses 15 and 16. When the water ran out, Ishmael died. Hagar put his body underneath a bush far enough away that she didn't have to see her dead son. She said, I'm, I'm going to wait until, I'm, I'm going to die out here too, just like my son, but I don't want to see him. So I'm going to put him aside. It says a bow shot, so as far as you can shoot a bow. And, and I'm going to sit up far enough away so I don't have to see him. Wither and decay, and then her voice gets louder, and she wept again. Again, don't take this as normative. This doesn't happen every time that I, I listen. If you go through a, a trial or an experience like this and you start crying, do not expect to hear the voice of God. That's not normative, but here it was. Look at verses 17 through 21. God is reminding her that He keeps His promises. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of the Lord of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. God provided what they needed. Even though Abraham and Sarah sent them out so they wouldn't have to deal with them anymore, they were not forgotten by God. God heard the cries of Hagar and made sure that she had nourishment and a promise that her son would fulfill what God had already said. If you haven't figured this out yet, The theme of this passage and the theme of this sermon is that God always keeps his promises. And we're seeing this time and time again in just Genesis chapter 21. Well, then we get to 22 through 34, which is another interaction between Abraham and Abimelech. If you remember in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham disgraced himself to Abimelech, who's a pagan king. Abimelech, not, not a follower of the Lord, Abimelech called out Abraham for his behavior. And by God's grace, though, things have changed. In verses 22 through 24, Abraham makes a treaty with Abimelech, promising no hostility between the two. At that time, Abimelech and, and, and uh, Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me or my descendants or with me, my pos- posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me And with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Do you see what's happening here? Abraham failed in his witness in his first meeting with Abimelech. And now his witness is so strong, Abimelech even recognizes it. So a side note. When you are a follower of Christ and you're living like one, the pagan people, Abimelech, the people who are not believers, will know. They will recognize it and they will see it in you. They will see a changed life. They will see that you're not the person that you once were. Abimelech saw that Abraham had been changed. He's not the same guy. His witness was strong. And Abimelech says, God is with you in all that you do. We see this wording repeated again, don't we, in Genesis? We see it with Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph having these words used to describe Them. Again, every Old Testament saint has failed. Every Old Testament saint is a sinner in need of a savior. But God never fails them. They gave into their sin and they didn't live up to what God demanded, but God never turns away from his people. Well, Abraham, brimming with confidence, puts this peace treaty to the test in verses 25 through 31. He says to Abimelech, Some of your people have been stealing my well. They've taken it. And Abimelech, in response, acknowledges that the well had been stolen by accepting seven lambs from Abraham. What does Abraham do then? Then look at verses 32 through 34. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a Tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called them on the name of the Lord. Called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God and Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Abraham calls on the name of the Lord. Why plant a tree? That's a really strange thing. I mean, in the Old Testament, these guys did really strange things after encounters with God, didn't they? They burned strange scents and they killed animals, perfectly good animals. They they built these altars in the middle of the desert. It's very strange. Well, planting a tree seems odd. Uh, Maybe in modern times he wouldn't have planted a tree. Maybe he would have have put one of those Christian framed art on his wall, right? Maybe he would have, have built a statue or a monument or erected a giant cross on the side of the interstate. I don't know. But the tree is a sign. It's a symbol of prosperity and flourishing. And it's also showing that he is rooted. The tree means something. And the story of Abraham always brings me again, over and over and again. And I I can't emphasize this enough. I can't emphasize this enough. God always keeps his promises. Right now, many of us are wondering about these, aren't we? God, you said you're going to do this or you're going to do that, and we're just not seeing it. God, we, we know that you're going to bless faithfulness. We, we know that, that, that if we're faithful to you, that, that you will honor that. And then our life falls apart. We have no answers. We, we know what we see in Scripture. We know what we believe in our heart. But what we're seeing with our own eyes, it just doesn't match up. We, we put our hope in people and our people disappoint us listen our hope is not in ourselves our hope as Christians is only in Christ Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life Jesus is the only one who could take the wrath of God and survive Jesus is the only one who can give us that assurance Jesus is the only one that can answer these problems he's the only one who can give us victory this is what all the stories in the Old Testament point to the promise of God finds its fulfillment in Jesus this should bring great fear to those who do not know Christ. Because, on one end, yes, Christians were promised eternal life, were promised eternity in the presence of God. Believer, saint, one day when you take your final breath, you will finally experience what you've been waiting for your whole life. You will experience what a sinless life is, what an existence without sin or death or decay or hurt, you'll experience that one day. You'll be in the presence of God. You'll be able to see him as he is. And you'll be able to bow down at the feet of Jesus. Those are promises that we cling to, the promises that we celebrate. They're the promises that give us life, that cause us to continue to move forward. But on the other side, the promise of God is eternal torment, eternal punishment for those who do not know Jesus. For those who reject the promise, the offer that Jesus has given of eternal life, of forgiveness of sin, of a right relationship with the Father, those who reject that, those who die in their sin are promised eternity in hell. And God always keeps his promise. Does he delight in this? No. But this is what we're asking for when we don't trust in Christ. This is exactly what our heart wants a heart that has been unchanged by the gospel, deserves and demands actually this fate. But the promise that God has made to his people is that he will save them from their sins. That he gives us new life, a new hope, and a future. And this is what causes us to celebrate, doesn't it? The gospel message that God always keeps his promise. Would you pray with me?